It's a simple question, yet it's a powerful question, a personal question that God comes to us through the book of James and asks, and it's simply this, what is your life? As most of you are aware of, almost 12 years ago, on September 11th, thousands of New Yorkers headed for work on what seemed to be a normal work day. But the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center ended the lives of 2,606 people and, as you realize, forever changed the history of our nation. My wife and I will never forget when we first heard the news of 9-11. We were on vacation in Branson, Missouri, and we immediately went back to our condo there and watch the events unfold in front of us on TV. I'm sure most of you can remember where you were when that took place. What was even more captured my thought besides on TV is, uh, later in the day, we actually went to Silver City, as we were planning to do, and just the shock on people's faces that you encountered in the park. And uh, it was very somber, and, uh, and, and I'll never forget that. One pastor, was interviewed for an article that a magazine published on people's response to 9-11 on the 10th anniversary, which was a couple of years ago. The interviewer asked, how do you think 9-11 changed you? And after thinking for a moment, the pastor said, and I quote his words, it awakened me to the fact that we are so much more vulnerable than we realized. 9-11 showed us how quickly life can change. And of course, here more recently, I'm sure the people in Oklahoma feel the same way after the horrific tornado swept through more Oklahoma, killing 24 people, injuring over 200 more. In fact, when I watched the video, I found myself struck by not only the tragedy of the moment, but how suddenly it happened. One moment a family is eating dinner in their home, and the next, they are scared for their lives, hunkered down in their basement or wherever they can find shelter. Life can change in an instant, can't it? The problem is we usually don't live that way. And so God's question is a rather important question for us to consider this morning. What is your life, he asks. And then he proceeds to tell us the answer to that question in James 4, verse 14. And he tells us, it is a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Now, if this seems somewhat shocking to you, it's supposed to be. Notice that James doesn't use safe and pleasant words when thinking of a metaphor for our lives. James doesn't say life is a journey with lots of hills and valleys. James doesn't say life is a battle with struggles and victories. No, he shocks. In fact, he almost offends us by saying, you are a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Now, this is what I would call vapor theology. Probably never heard of vapor theology. It's right here in James chapter 4, verse 14. And vapor theology teaches us two facts. Life is short and death is certain. The Greek word here for vapor can mean mist or even a puff of smoke. And so our lives are like droplets of mist from a spray bottle. In fact, I have a spray bottle here for an illustration. And James says, 
That's your life. Can you see the mist? It's here now, and then it's gone in a flash. And that's what he compares our life to. We are here today, and we are gone tomorrow. We're here for a brief moment. Think how quickly life goes. It doesn't seem that long ago that many of us here were teens in high school. In fact, I'm still in shock that I am old enough to have a child who's talking about getting his driver's permit. I'm like, oh my word, how can this be? I'm not that old, am I? We tend to think we'll be here forever. But vapor theology says that we're here today and we're gone tomorrow. And you be think, may be thinking, Bruce, that's so morbid. I thought this was a worship service. We're to celebrate. I don't want to think about such things as vapor theology. But we need to think about our lives with vapor theology so we know how to live this life in light of eternity. And so James comes to us and he says, since your life is a vapor, how then should we live? And I would propose to you from the passage that Kirk read for us this morning that the answer to this question, since your life is a vapor, we should not live presumptuously without God, but rather we should live humbly before God. Presumptuous living as we're going to see, is arrogant living. It's prideful living. It's self-sufficient living. And this was a huge issue in James' day, just as it is an issue in our day. In fact, James is rather alarmed that so many people in the early church in his day were living presumptuously without God instead of humbly before God. And so James, in this book here, he comes to us and he confronts this issue head on with one simple question. What is your life? Although these people, they profess to know Christ, they profess to be followers of Christ, they were living with a presumptuous attitude that says, I chart my own destiny. I make my own decisions. I decide when and where I will make my way in life. In other words, these people embraced a worldview that failed to take into account their own mortality and God's sovereignty. And James confronts them on it, just as he confronts us today. In fact, these people were living with two mistakes. They were making two mistakes in their life with this kind of living, with presumptuous living. I want us to look at it here this morning, the two mistakes of presumptuous living. Number one, the first mistake is planning the future without God. That's the first mistake, is planning the future without God. James begins by saying in verse 13, Come now, you who say, and his tone here with these words, listen, it's direct and it's confrontational. We would say it like this. He says, come now. In our vernacular today, it's be like, uh, hey, listen up. If James were preaching like he wrote, we would all sit up in our seats right now and we would be paying attention. We would hang on every word that he says. 
His words and tone are designed to wake up a person to what is going on. And that is exactly what James is doing here. He's waking us up to the problem of presumptuous living among these Christ followers in the church. James' concern is, is how people talk while they live their lives. Why? Because how you talk matters. In fact, notice this. James writes, come now. And then the next phrase is, you who say. And so he's addressing people who are talking about how they are living. And so how you talk matters. This means presumptuous living. It shows up in how you talk about yourself. It shows up in how you talk about your plans. It shows up in how you talk about your future all without any regard for God. James is describing people who speak very presumptuously about what they are going to do in their life. And it is remarkably self-centered and self-sufficient. James tells us here in verse 13 that these people were basically saying, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Now let's just stop for a moment. Because immediately the temptation is to think, man, I'm glad I didn't go to that church where these people went. Glad I'm not in their boat. Glad James is talking to them. But let's stop for a moment here because, folks, if we're really honest with ourselves, this is how most of us talk today. We look to the future. We look at what has happened in our past, and then we make our plans. And yes, at a certain level, there's nothing wrong with planning, per se, like James describes here in verse 13. So what's the problem, then, that he's getting at in verse 13? Well, what's wrong is that the plan these people made in verse 13 is made in the mind, and it's spoken with the mouth without any regard for God Almighty. These people were self-managing their lives. Their plans were their plans. As one author wrote, this is the sort of self-sufficient, self-important planning that keeps God for Sunday but looks on Monday to Saturday as mine. So what we have here in verse 13 is a case of presumptuous planning on behalf of these people. Notice this in your notes coming up on the screen. They picked the time. They said today or tomorrow. They picked the place, such and such a city. They picked the period, spend a year there. They picked the purpose of what they were going to do. They picked the activity they're going to buy and sell. And then they picked the result. We're going to make a profit. They have all their plans picked. They have them laid out. But who is missing in their plans? God is missing. They were making plans without taking into account God's sovereignty. They failed to acknowledge that their lives were in the hands of God and that He was sovereign over their lives. And then James, as he did for them and he does for us, he identifies the problem with this kind of planning, with this kind of presumptuous planning. When he writes in verse 14, look what he says, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. So here's the basic problem with presumptuous planning. We, we have no sure knowledge or guarantee of tomorrow. 
Oh, we think we know what will happen a year from now. But in reality, we don't know what will happen tomorrow or even in the rest of the day when we leave here. How many of us know what will happen when you drive home today? How many of us really know what's going to happen? No one does. Proverbs 27.1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. And yet, many of us, we make plans on our tablets and smartphones with great personal confidence. We plan to go to this college. We plan to get this certain degree. We plan on getting a job in this field. We plan on getting married and having a family. We plan on buying a house and having a dog. We plan that we'll live a good, long, happy life here in this world. And then our plans get messed up, don't they? Our husband's diagnosed with cancer. Our wife leaves us and takes the kids. A drunk runs a red light and T-bones your daughter's car, leaving her paralyzed for life. Your job gets downsized, and you're let go. The contract on the house of your dreams falls through, and we could go on and on and on with all the potentialities of life. Let's face it. When this happens to us, though, when change happens to our plans, what's our natural response? I don't know about you, but I get angry. I even get upset, and sometimes I get a little bitter. My plans are changed. We say, this wasn't what I planned for my life. How can this happen? But James comes to us and he says, stop it. Don't you get it? The reason your plans are changing is because you aren't in control of your life like you thought you were. God is. Now again, don't misunderstand here. James isn't down on planning. In fact, you could go throughout the scriptures. God commends purposeful planning in our lives. So if planning isn't the problem, then what is? Again, the problem is planning in our lives, thinking we are the ones who have final say in determining it. But James is reminding us that God is in charge of the big calendar of our lives. And we must submit our plans to his master plan. Let me ask you, are you okay with that? Are you okay with God changing your plans? Both the small plans and the big plans. Are you okay with God changing your plans that you have for tomorrow as you go through your day? We set our agenda. We have our expectations. And it doesn't go the way we expect and the way we want because God changes it. Are you okay with that? Are you okay that God changes your big plans? Or the vacation that you're going to take this summer, or what you're going to do for Christmas time next December. Are you okay that God changes the plans for your kids? Your plans. We can schedule our appointments, we can make our plans on our tablets and smartphones, but we really don't know if we'll fulfill them. Only God does. So we must, in a sense, in a real way, we must submit our plans to God's will and what He determines will bring Him glory. And then be okay when God takes our life in a direction that we never planned for, that we never anticipated. So should we plan? Absolutely. But be sure you take into account God's sovereignty in your plans. You say, well, what does that mean? 
It means acknowledging that God has the right to change your plans at a moment's notice, and get this, without asking your permission. It means submitting your plans to God's will and His glory, especially when He changes your plans. So the first mistake these people were making, just as we make it today, the first mistake of presumptuous living is planning the future without any regard for God. The second mistake is this. It's boasting about the certainty of life. Boasting about the certainty of life. But what does James say about life? Well, James tells us in verse 14, he asks the question, for what is your life? And then he tells us the answer. It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Boy, it sure doesn't sound very certain to me, does it? In fact, life is far more vulnerable, far more unstable than what we often realize. I'm sure most of you have heard of Steve Jobs. How many know who Steve Jobs is? All right, quite a few of you. Steve Jobs was the one who built a revolutionary business empire at Apple. He was known as the charismatic pioneer of the personal computer revolution and for his influence in the consumer electronics field. In fact, before his death, he was worth, get this, an estimated $8 billion. Whoa. And the legacy of Steve Jobs continues to this day. In fact, one of his phones and computers is sitting in my office right now. And how many of you have one of his devices? Well, several of you do. Every day, the legacy of Steve Jobs' life continues throughout the world, and it will probably do so for a long, long time. But Steve Jobs, the person, is dead. He died from complications related to his pancreatic cancer in October of 2011. His legacy remains, but he is dead nonetheless. He died at the age of 56. Steve Jobs is a reminder that life is a vapor. He appeared for a little while, 56 years, and now he is gone. Vapor theology reminds us that life is short and death is certain. Now, here's the challenge with vapor theology. Here's the challenge with these two statements. Listen to me. The challenge with these two thoughts, life is short, death is certain, is that this is not a new concept. Everyone here today has heard that before. Every one of us understands that. We know that. We know theoretically that life is short and death is certain. But over time, this is the challenge. We can easily forget this fact. You get up, go to work, go to bed. And the next day, what do you do? You get up, go to work, go to bed. Next day, what do you do? Get up, go to work. Go to bed. And this is how most of us live life day after day after day after day. And this pattern and this predictability feels at times like a natural law, a given. And we can become accustomed to the predictability, predict, I can't say that word, predictability, the routine 
and the pattern of life in which we live, even thinking that this is the way life is supposed to be. But folks, can I submit to you here this morning that part of growing up in Christ, part of growing spiritually, is realizing that despite the so-called predictability of my life, life hangs by a thread, and it would teeter completely out of control if it wasn't for God's providential care of my life in this world. James says as much in verse 15 when he says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Now James is not suggesting that you annoyingly add, if the Lord wills, to every statement. Well, I'm going to go to work tomorrow, if the Lord wills. I'm going to go have dinner, if the Lord wills. He's not suggesting that. Rather, what James is doing here, he's hitting on an attitude of self-centered overconfidence which shows itself in self-sufficient talk. In fact, James identifies a much, much, much deeper problem with presumptuous living, and he describes it for us in verse 16. Look what he writes. He says, but now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So what we see here in this verse is that the root problem of presumptuous living is pride. And the expression of that pride, James says, is boasting. Now it's interesting, James tags the previous conversation in verse 13 as boasting here. That's fascinating. Because at first glance, what these people said does not necessarily fit our definition of boasting. I mean, how do we think of boasting? We usually think of boasting as, well, it's somebody talking about themselves in an overly favorable light. The traditional definition of boasting is, and I quote, to speak with exaggeration and excessive pride, especially about oneself. That's boasting. But James here, you know what he does? He expands that definition of boasting for us. In the context of James chapter 4, it's clear that boasting includes arrogance. You say, what kind of arrogance? Arrogance in our thinking that one controls the future. And if you put it together with what James now says in verse 15 about saying, if the Lord wills, then boasting is also talking as if God is not part of your plans. Let me tell you, that changes things. Since we think of boasting as talking about oneself with exaggeration or excessive pride, but James gives us a a much bigger definition that widens the application for us here today. Boasting, he says, is talking as if God is not essential to everything we are doing in our lives. Which brings us to the first truth about boasting here that I want you to see. Number one, the first truth is boasting, according to James, is the absence of God in our talk. It's the absence of God in our talk. Boasting at any level comes from the same source. A self-sufficient attitude that fails to get the right perspective first on God and then about us. Listen to me. Notice this. Don't miss this. Pride. Pride may express itself by talking as if you are better than others. That's one form of pride. 
Or pride may express itself by talking about the future of life as if, you, as if life were not entirely dependent on God. In both cases, the issue is an absence of God in how we talk. Now, this kind of talk is part of the cultural air that we breathe today. I mean, just think about this week, you tune in to the conversations people have tomorrow at work. Tune in to the conversations your neighbors have. Tune in to the conversations your family has. And tune in and see how much God is part of the conversation. Listen, this kind of talk is part of our culture. It's part of the cultural air that we breathe. And as Christ followers, we get swept up in this. In this way, how we, how we do this, how this comes out, is we begin to talk anonymously. In this way, we just leave God out in the equation of our lives. We never factor God in. We talk autonomously, apart from God. We speak with overconfidence. We talk as if we know the future. We plan as if we determine our destinies. It's this absence of God in our talk that gets us into trouble as Christ followers. And King Nebuchadnezzar, remember King? Go back to the book of Daniel. Let me tell you, this dude is the poster child for this kind of boasting, for this kind of talking autonomously while walking on the roof of his palace. He boastfully says in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Man, who's missing in that? God's missing. But Daniel 4, verses 31 and 32 continues. It says, even as the words, again, presumptuous living always shows up in how you talk first. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. Oh, there's God. He may be missing from his lips, but God is not missing on the throne. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from the people, and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives to them anyone he wishes. Like King Nebuchadnezzar, we need to be reminded of Paul's question to the church at Corinth. These believers had forgotten that all their abilities, that their opportunities in life, and that their blessings in life were from the very hands of God. And so Paul comes to them, these believers at the church of Corinth, and he asks them in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? In other words, Paul's saying to these people, as he says to us, look around you. Look at your kids. Look at your job, your home, your stuff. Look at the family you were born into, the circumstances that lined up to get you where you are today. Do you think you did that? Look at your personality. 
Look at your talents. Look at your opportunities, your blessings. Do you think all that came from you? What do you have that you didn't receive? Nothing. Paul reminds us here that everything we have comes from God by His grace and His goodness. So boasting, get this, let James redefine your definition of boasting here. Boasting is not only an issue of what we say about ourselves, it is also an issue of what we fail to say about God in our conversations daily. Boasting can be as simple as the absence of God in our talk. And so maybe you're here and you think, I don't ever boast. And yet you never mention God in one conversation Monday through Saturday. He never comes out of your lips until we come to church on Sunday morning. Folks, James is trying to wake us up. He's trying to tell us that is boasting. And that comes from a heart of pride. Which brings us to the second truth about boasting. Boasting is silenced, though, by the gospel in our lives. Woo! I'm telling you, man, this is cool here. Pay attention. Paul, the Apostle Paul here, was describing the desperate condition of humanity, that is you and I, and the beauty of the gospel in Romans chapter 3. Listen to what he writes in verses 23 through 26. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Woo! Right? He goes on. He says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just in the one who justifies for those who have faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, let me summarize what Paul's writing here. He's basically saying the condition of humanity, we could say it this way, the condition of every one of us here this morning is so bad that every one of us, by the very nature of who we are, and by our own choices, have sinned. And we have fallen away from a holy God. And the more we try to be a good person, the more laws we hear about how to do that, the worse it gets, the more evidence it becomes to us that we are sinners. And the only hope, Paul says, is the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is that God pours out His wrath, not on you and I, but instead pours His wrath out for our sins on the Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And He grants to us now Christ's righteousness. And it becomes my righteousness. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And the good news is that God has applied your sins to Jesus. And He has given you his righteousness. And what do you do? Man, you receive it. You say, how do I receive it? I receive it by faith. Therefore, your spiritual standing before God Almighty has nothing to do with what you do or what you've done. 
Your spiritual standing now before God as Christ's righteousness covers you and His shed blood forgives you of your sins is entirely and eternally a gift of God. Folks, that is what is called grace. And then Paul asks the ultimate question for us in verse 27. He says to us then, where then is boasting in this picture? And don't miss his answer. He says, it's excluded. In other words, he says, it's silenced. Why? Because everything we have, we have received. Everything is a gift from the hands of a gracious and good God, including our salvation. And so the Gospel of Jesus Christ excludes all boasting because there is no self in salvation. As Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Why? Lest anyone should boast. So step back here for a moment. Let me recap. What we've learned here from James is that boasting, get this, is far more than speaking too highly about yourself. Boasting is the noticeable absence of God in how we talk. Yes, including Monday through Saturday. For some of you, the real problem is not that you talk too much about yourself. Oh, don't misunderstand me. That's a problem. But it's not the problem. The ultimate problem is that you don't realize that everything, especially the condition of your own soul, is dependent upon God's graciousness to you. And this is what leads so many people still in the church today, and especially in our culture today, to live presumptuously without any regard for God, instead of humbly before a sovereign God. You say, well, what does it mean to live humbly before God? It's an attitude that basically says, Dio Valente. Dio Valente. You're like, what in the world is that? Well, the Puritans and the Methodists, a few centuries back, had a knack for ending their correspondence. This was back when you actually wrote letters by hand on paper. Do any of us remember that? And they would end their correspondence with the letters D-V. Those two letters stand for the Latin words Dio Valente, which means, if the Lord wills. And so James now calls for the same hard attitude when he writes in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, listen to me. Whether we write the letters DV at the end of our emails or at the end of a text message or whether we even verbalize if the Lord wills, that is not the point here. All right, so please don't send me a text message and you got DV at the end of it. 
What I rather see is a hard attitude of DV. The point James is emphasizing for us is an attitude that acknowledges, get this, our own mortality in God's sovereignty. You say, what does that look like? Let me close with this. Living humbly before God is an attitude that basically says two things. It says if the Lord wills, number one, we will live. This simply means that the duration of our lives is in the hands of God. Do you realize that? Have you ever considered before that your life is in the hands of God? Now some people take great fear in that. Others take great comfort in that. It all depends what your view of God is, does it not? God is ultimately in control of life and death. We may not know how long our vapor-like life will linger in the air, but let me tell you, God does. Because God is the one who decides how long we will live. And James is simply saying to us that this truth here about life and about God should shape our mindset. It should shape our attitude. And it should shape the way we talk in life. Number two, living humbly before God is an attitude that says, if the Lord's wills, we will do this or that. This simply means that the activities and the accomplishments of our lives are also in God's hands. God governs what we do and what we accomplish in life. This means that if the Lord does not will it, folks, we will not do it. But if the Lord wills it, hopefully we will obey it and do it. The Apostle Paul lived with this humble attitude before God. Listen to what he says. In Acts chapter 18, 21, Paul left Ephesus and said, I will return to you again if God wills. And in 1 Corinthians 4, 19, Paul writes, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. For most of his life, get this, the Apostle Paul did not know if the next town might be his burial place or the place of his next church plant. Paul never knew. That was in the hands of God. And the same is true with our lives and our activities. If the Lord wills, we will live. If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. So let me ask you now, do you see how arrogant it is? How prideful it is not to believe with your heart and confess with your lips that ultimately how long you live and what you accomplish in this life is ultimately in the hands of God. No wonder God comes to us today in our self-centered and self-sufficient culture and He asks us one simple question, what is your life? And then God graciously reminds us, while we still have time to change our attitude, to change our life, to realign it according to God's will. And he tells us that our life is a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. And since our lives are a vapor, folks, listen, we should not live presumptuously without God, but humbly before God. 
if I may suggest, and girls, your life is a vapor as well, even at age 13 and 12. We could be here today, but you could be gone tomorrow. And so what James is saying is just as serious to you teens. Don't think for a minute your life tomorrow at junior camp is guaranteed, because it's not. Don't think for a minute that your life next year at college is guaranteed, because it's not. And I say that with love. This is the cultural air we breathe, doesn't it? And it affects our kids. And our respect for God and his word. And just life in general. And so since our lives are vapors, listen, do not live presumptuously before God, but live humbly before God. Because I'm telling you, this is our greatest danger as Christ followers, but it can also be our greatest triumph as Christ followers. The greatest danger facing us today is living in this manner. It's living presumptuously without any regard for God and acting as if it won't matter. That I won't give an account to God. But the greatest triumph for you and I as Christ followers will be living humbly before a sovereign and gracious God who governs our lives and our achievements for our good and for His glory. So I ask you, as James asked, what is your life? It's a vapor. But then the question becomes, how will you live? I hope you see the need to live humbly before God and not presumptuously without any regard for Him. With your heads bowed, as we come to our response time, I pray that God's Word here is impacted your heart 